Greetings friends, my name is Jeremy Walker and this is a podcast from the heart of Spurgeon in which week by week we work our way through the sermons preached and then published by the eminent Victorian pastor and preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This week we're in sermons 836 to 842 and you can follow along the daily readings on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. And then we select a particular representative sermon and that becomes the featured sermon for the week and the substance of this podcast, which is produced by Media Gratii. And you can find it at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, uh, where you can also sign up for a newsletter to get the, uh, the substance of the sermon and a weekly reading prompt. If you're able to support the work of Media Gratii, you can also do that at their website and that way you'll be helping uh, them to produce this and other similar podcasts. So this week then, Sermon 838, which has the title Sins of Omission and is taken from Jeremiah 11 verse 8. Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, but walked every one in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they did them not. Spurgeon begins by pointing out that Jeremiah was commissioned by God to bring a solemn accusation against his rebellious people. And while he goes on to mention their sins of commission, that is the things that they have done against God's law, he begins with their sins of omission, that is the the shortcomings in positive service, the things that they have left out. They have not done what they ought to have done and had consistently and persistently refused to render active obedience to the righteous will of the Most High. And Spurgeon says it's good for us to have our sins brought to remembrance, that we also need to be aware both of our sins of commission and here our sins of omission, both in in the sense that some of us may never have had our sins forgiven, and others who have been forgiven need still to be humbled about the things that are lacking in our service. So the subject, sins of omission, and first of all, Spurgeon calls our attention to the great commonness of these, to their commonness in the wide world, their frequency in our own circle of society, and to each man and to each woman, the abundance of your own heart. He observes then, as we begin, that in a certain sense, All offences against the law of God come under the head of sins of omission. Our Lord has told us that the whole law is summarised in these two commands, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbour as yourself. And so every sin is a breach of this all-comprehensive law, and every sin, therefore, must in a certain sense be a sin of omission, a falling short of this holy standard. And that's true then with regard to the love that we uh, are obliged to render to God with all our heart, perhaps omitting to love him at all, perhaps omitting to, uh, to love him at all times. We are constantly flagging. There are too many gaps in these things. We have not rendered to God according to the benefits which we have received. If we look at the first four commands of the Ten Commandments, those which make up the first table of the law, how much we have fallen short of the glory of God. Spurgeon says we've omitted to make God the chief, the first, the foremost, the only Lord of our spirit, 
Too often we've had other gods before him. We've omitted to treat his name with the reverence which he demands, and if we have not committed profanity or blasphemy, yet his name has not always been hallowed by us as it should have been. As for his day, it has not always been guarded sacredly as a day of mental as well as bodily rest. We've done servile work in our minds, if not with our hands, and how badly we've treated the father of our spirits. He has deserved to be served with all-consuming earnestness. And if we move on to the second table of the law, that you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Spurgeon says we have often omitted to act lovingly towards our neighbour. We have failed to do the kind thing toward the sick and the poor in relieving them, the right thing towards the ignorant in seeking their instruction. Many of us have the blood of our neighbours upon our skirts because we have left them in ignorance and have not told them the gospel. And if they die in their sin, they might well, with their dying breath, upbraid us that, having the light, we have not carried it to them. He wants us to look out of our window. Can we really say, I am clear concerning all those who live around me? I have to the utmost of my ability done for them what I shall wish to have done when I come to die. We need to think about the the responsibility that we bear to the people who live around us. Then he says, look at your sins of omission in another light. Some have omitted to perform the first and all essential gospel commands. The gospel goes and cries, repent and be converted. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And if you fall short here, this want of faith is a sin of omission which will sink you to the lowest hell. It is the damning sin of all, and above all others fills the gates of hell, that men do not believe on Jesus Christ, but love darkness rather than light. Again, he says, what sins of omission cluster round religious duties. So you can see here that he's begun to now develop this out from these two general branches that we do not love God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind and we do not love our neighbour as ourselves. Now he's breaking it down in some of this uh, more particular and close detail. So he says the, uh, the prayers that we're meant to pray, or the Bible that lies open before us, silent but solemn in its eloquence, it accuses us. Can you look at it, my hearers, without shame? Unread is that book from day to day, while the ephemeral newspaper, the mere record of the flying hour and its trivialities, is read with eagerness to the neglect of the great things of God's law. What about the, the way that we should pray, praise God, the, the lack of heart in the music that we make in the church? When the time of prayer has come, our thoughts have been gadding here and there, following all kinds of different trails. God deserves from us that we should serve him, that we should to the utmost of our abilities contribute to the revenue of his glory. But our talents have been wrapped in a napkin. Our service has been given to self. We've lived to please ourselves or to win our fellow creatures' applause, while our blessed God has had only the dregs of our thoughts, the remnants of our time, the refuse of our actions. The role of omissions, he says, is so long. And if we read it with a tender conscience, it's going to seem dark with these lamentations heaped up upon one another. Who among us, he says then, apart from the atonement, can endure the thought that God records all our failures of duty as well as our actual transgressions? 
Our omissions frown upon us and thunder at us. They lie upon the horizon of memory like masses of storm clouds accumulating for a horrible tempest. None of us dare turn our eye in that direction until first we have seen the Lord's appointed propitiation and found our rest in him. So his first point here is to try and give us a sense of the the depth and the variety of our sins of omission, the things that we have left undone. But why is this, he asks secondly, what's the cause of this excessive multiplicity of sins of omission? Why is it that we leave so much undone that ought to be done with regard to God? And the great cause lies in our evil hearts. If we're not born again, we will remain barren and unprofitable and unaccepted by God. A lack in the new nature is the great root of the matter in the ungodly, that the fact that we are not new creatures, the absence of a new heart and a right spirit. Men will never obey the Lord's commands till the Holy Spirit take away the heart of stone and give them the heart of flesh. So he goes on to say that the the unnoticed superabundance of sins of omission may also result from the fact that the conscience of man is not well alive to sins of omission. We're much more sensitive to or much more aware of sins of commission, the, the evident transgressions of God's law. If we'd committed a, a, an evident theft, if we'd fallen into an act of uh, impurity or uh, adultery, then it would be obvious to us and conscience can be very quickly stirred in such cases. But he says, there's as much sin in not loving God as there is in lusting after evil. There's as much rebellion in not obeying God as in breaking his commands. These sins of ours, which we've never confessed or noticed, they've slipped away with the hours, they've gone as a dream, but they're recorded in the book of God. And in the day when unforgiven sinners with awakened consciences shall be made to hear that book read out before an assembled universe, woe unto them, woe unto them, that they refused to be obedient to the Lord. So we have to think now and say, am I even aware of the number of things that God requires of me that I have left undone? Is my conscience at all alert to those things or does it tend only to think in terms of the, uh, the sins that I have committed that are, are more obvious and more evident? Then sins of omission are multiplied through indolence, through laziness. Some men have not enough force of character in them to be downright wicked. They're mere chips in the porridge with nothing of manhood in them. To repent, he says, is troublesome. To believe in Christ requires the exercise of thought. To be a Christian is too laborious then. To watch your conduct and conversation is too much to require of them. In other words, we sin by omission because we just can't be bothered. It's too much like hard work. If heaven could be reached sound asleep, and if a sleeping car, a a train with a bed in it, could be run all the way to the celestial city, then these people would be the best of pilgrims. But they can't rub their eyes even to see Jesus or leave their couch to win heaven itself. So this laziness means that we leave out so much. Ignorance too, more excusable and perhaps less fruitful, but still prominent. If a man sins through ignorance, he is so far excusable as the ignorance is excusable, but no further. And, says Spurgeon, 
for most of us, speaking of his own time and place, and the same would be true of, I imagine, most of the people who are listening to this podcast, an ignorance of Christ, an ignorance of gospel duties, an ignorance of the law of God is without excuse, since in almost every street Christ is preached, and the word of God is within every man's reach, and if he be but willing and desirous to know the mind of God, he may soon discover it. Another reason why sins of omission are plentiful is because men excuse themselves so readily about them by pretending that they'll wait for a more convenient time. I'll, I'll do what God requires, but later I'll repent when I've got the opportunity. I, I haven't believed, but I'll do so before too long. Yes, I haven't prayed today, but I, I'll pray soon. I'll, I'll pray later. I'll pray tomorrow. And men imagine that God is to be served by them at their own times and seasons. God is expected to wait until it pleases them to do his bidding, and when they have a more convenient season, then will they hearken or listen to his word and to his spirit again. And then there's another reason why a mission is so easy, because those who neglect God's will excuse themselves by the prevalence of the like conduct. What he means is, We take refuge in the fact that everybody else does what we do or doesn't do what we're not doing. To omit to love and serve the Lord is the custom of the majority and it makes us very comfortable to just fall into their way of going and the pace and the direction in which they are moving. It's it's like a, a prisoner being brought before the bench and saying, well, I am a thief, but all the people where I live are thieves and therefore I ought not to be punished. Yes, I can't keep my hands from picking and stealing, but none of my family ever could. They were brought up to it, and they couldn't have a man forsake the customs of his father and mother. So it's the the idea that just because someone else falls short, that it entitles me not to bother either. So what Spurgeon's doing here, and he's doing it well, and it's one of the things that he consistently aims at, is not just to, to allow us to consider these things is in themselves as as sort of distant truths, but he brings them home to us and he makes us look in the, the mirror of God's word and he begins to probe into our souls. I don't think very much about sins of omission. Laziness makes it easy to leave things out. Ignorance gives me what I consider to be a straightforward excuse, but I don't really have an excuse to be ignorant. I, I brush it off and say that I'll, uh, I'll make it up at another time. I see other people doing the same sorts of things and that makes me feel at least content to be where I am. And so in the third place, Spurgeon wants to drive home the sinfulness of sins of omission. And he begins now to, to, to groan in his preaching. I wish I had the power to speak upon this subject as I would, for I long to see broken hearts among us, convinced of their innumerable shortcomings. Broken hearts are God's sacrifices. There are some among us who complain that they cannot believe in Jesus because they do not feel their need. I only wish they might be made to feel their need, while this morning they are reminded of what they've left undone. So here's a man who's preaching independence upon the Holy Spirit. I pray the Holy Ghost, he says, to make you feel the guilt of omissions as they are seen in the following light. So each of these succeeding points is, as it were, cutting deeper and deeper into our rubbery hearts. He asks us to consider for a moment 
what would be the consequences if God were to omit for one minute to supply you with breath, if the Lord should omit for a second to supply you with life, if God should withdraw these mercies, if God should omit his long-suffering mercy for an hour. And you see now how he's playing with this word omission. You omit what God is entitled to from you, what if God were to omit what he is pleased to bestow upon you, though you are not entitled to it? Do you think you're entitled to life? No. You're a sinner and you deserve death. Suppose God should withhold his blessings in his great mercy, even as a creator toward you. Could you say that he's taken away what you're entitled to? No for all your mercies are mercies indeed, undeserved, ill-deserved, that you have never been able to, to earn them or merit them or deserve them. If God in his salvation had omitted one needful part, then we would be damned. So he says, understand what what would happen if, if the Lord God withheld or omitted these graces and mercies toward you. If you'll digest these thoughts, he says, you might taste the blessedness which lies in neglect of needful things. Omissions cannot be trivial, he says, if we only reflect what an influence they have upon an ordinary commonwealth, if they were perpetrated there as they are in God's commonwealth. What he means by this is, what would happen if in ordinary life we left out our ordinary duties? What would happen if if we neglected the things that we are responsible to do, which we are expected to do? If one person has a right to omit his duty, so does another, and then so do all. And so the watchman would omit to guard the house, the policeman would omit to arrest the thief, the judge would omit to sentence the offender, the sheriff would omit to punish the culprit, the government would omit to carry out its laws, every occupation would cease, the world would die of stagnation, the whole kingdom would be out of joint, the machine would break down, for no cog of the wheels would act upon its fellow. Spurgeon is basically saying that if if we operated on this basis in the in the world at large, then everything would fall apart around us. Why then do we think that the Lord would tolerate in his kingdom the things that would not be tolerated in any lesser kingdom? How can God tolerate that there should be an omission here and an omission there in defiance of his authority? Then how do you judge omissions toward yourselves? Again, what's happening here is that Spurgeon is trying to to press home these things so that we begin to understand exactly how wretched some of these things are. We have said to ourselves, so so long as I don't drink or swear or curse or lie or steal, that's a small matter if I just neglect to be devout toward God. Is that how we treat others? He uses the example of a servant who's never stolen your goods, never set your house on fire, never held a gun to your ear, and yet you've discharged him. Why? Well, because he neglects everything. He may not have robbed you, he may not have attacked you, he may not have threatened you, but he just doesn't do what he's supposed to do. Or a soldier in the army. To commit an act of mutiny, it's not necessary for the soldier to fix his bayonet and kill his colonel. If he's ordered out on guard, he just stops at home. Or when the battle rages, he just grounds his arms and says, no, I'm not going out to fight. The omission is as vicious as the commission. 
Your child the other day smarted beneath the rod. And why? He said, why did you punish your child? He hadn't lied or pilfered. There was no direct vicious act. But you told him to go on an errand and he simply refused to go. And when you told him again and again, he stood in stolid obstinacy and would not move. And so, if you cannot tolerate that from a child, why should God tolerate obstinate omissions from us? You might say, I haven't omitted towards God to go to church or to the meeting regularly. I've not omitted the form of singing and prayer and so on. All I've left out is the spiritual matter. I just haven't loved him. And suppose you had a wife, and the only thing that she has omitted is that she has omitted to love you. What do you think of that? Well, the house and the domestic arrangements may show great cleanliness and order, but she's no wife to you if she has no love for you. The omission of love you feel to be a fatal one. And so that absence of love to God is such a dreadful absence, such a taking away of everything, that I only wish you could feel, you who have not loved him, how guilty you must have been. And so Spurgeon's here really back with that, that first point. It's love to God, love to our fellow man. And then he says, consider what God thinks of omissions. And he uses a, a couple of examples. Saul, who was ordered to wipe out the Amalekites and not to let one escape. And yet he let the king get away. And then there was Christ, the gentlest of all men. But when he saw the fig tree, leaves but no fruit, he cursed it. And the parable that, that, the, that was read in the in the sermon before in the service before the sermon was preached a man with one talent was condemned because he had squandered his lord's not that he had squandered his lord's money but that he had not increased it the fact was he just hadn't done anything so that in god's opinion the not doing of good is sufficient to condemn men even if they have not committed positive evil when the holy spirit convinces men of sin what is the special sin which he reveals? Adultery? Robbery? No, of sin, because they do not believe in me. Omitting to believe in Jesus is the master sin of which the Holy Ghost convicts the world. Remember that solemn question of Paul when he says, How shall we escape if we, what, if we swear? If we frequent the tavern? No, if we neglect so great salvation. The lifelong neglecting of salvation involves us in a danger from which there is no escape. So Spurgeon's been digging deeper and deeper and comes fourthly now to the result and the punishment of sins of omission. He says these sins of omission will condemn us. Again, he goes back to the parable that was read in the service. The king said to those in his left hand, I was hungered and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. He had uh, been reading through Matthew uh, 25, and he says, not that you were frequenters of evil houses, that is, you, 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 you hung out perhaps in, in brothels or with gangsters, you were, not that you were common drunkards, not that you were dishonest, not that you were fraudulent bankrupts, not that you were neglecters of the Sabbath, not that you were common and profane swearers. No, it was the absence of virtue rather than even the presence of vice which first condemned them. They had simply left out what they could and should have done. God will not accept our profession of religion because it simply keeps us chaste and decorous, makes us civil to our neighbours and so on. 
we must have wrought in us by the Holy Ghost a righteousness better than that of the scribes and Pharisees, or we shall by no means enter into the kingdom. And then again, sins of omission not only bring condemnation, but if persevered in, they effectually shut against us the possibilities of pardon. Spurgeon means here that sins of omission against the gospel deprive us of gospel privileges. As long as we cling to sin, sin will cling to us as leprosy to the house of Gehazi. God forgives all sins through Jesus Christ. He's willing to forgive the vilest of us if we come to him trusting alone in Jesus. But if we have no faith in Jesus Christ, it is not possible for us to receive from the Lord the forgiveness of sins which he promises only to those who believe in Jesus. So if you will go on neglecting to repent, if you will go on omitting to believe, you have cut yourself off from the very things by which God will bring those blessings of salvation into your possession. I could not charge some of you today, says Spurgeon, with anything outwardly contrary to morality, but, oh sirs, if you have not Mark that point, put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ by a living faith in him, the tormentors must have you at the last. Oh, that this truth might sink into your ears and into your hearts. There is pardon for all omission to be found in the flowing wounds of Jesus. There is life in a look at him. Over the heads of these multiplied shortcomings, God's mercy will come to believers. But oh, remain not in your unbelief. May the Holy Spirit by his own mighty power give you now to repent and now to believe. And yours shall be the salvation and God's the glory, world without end. And so he concludes. It's a, it's a striking sermon, really, I think, for its substance. I think it's also very significant today in Christian churches where it's easy perhaps and becoming in some respects easier for us to see the dividing line between the world and the church. And it's easy for us to become perhaps a little pharisaical and to say, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other people. I don't do what they do. I don't act as they act. I'm not living as they live. I'm not a thief, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not a swearer, I'm, I'm this, that and the other. I'm, I'm a, a tither, I'm a giver, I'm a worshipper, I'm an attendee at church, I'm, I'm still married to my husband, to my wife, I, I'm a good father to my children, I'm a good mother to my children, all of those sorts of things. And Spurgeon presses beneath the surface and he asks us to consider either in terms of whether or not I've ever truly been forgiven, or to humble me if I've begun to rely upon my outward excellences to think of how far short I have fallen and still do fall of the glory of God, that what I leave out in the service which God is entitled to receive from me, that what is lacking in my love, my adoration, my devotion, to the God who is over all, to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that those sins of omission need to be taken account of, that these too are sins that need to be covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, that I need his perfect righteousness to make me acceptable in him before God, that I need to understand that, that I, I am just not 
in any sense perfect, that I have not loved the Lord my God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my strength and with all my mind, that I haven't loved my neighbor as myself, that even the things which I I think I'm doing, even the things which I actually am doing, even my believing lacks perfection, even my repenting lacks completeness. When I worship God, I fall short of that which is pleasing to him. I need Christ in everything. I need to repent of my believing and repenting. I need God, and unless God is showing his mercy toward me, I am lost. I need a conscience that is stirred to understand what this means. I need to to overcome my indolence and my ignorance. I need to stop making excuses because I plan to do something else later or because I'm at least a little bit better than or at least no worse than other people around me. Spurgeon won't let us get away with this. He presses on again and again and wants us to understand what it would be like to live then in a world in which God himself omitted his mercies toward us and the society in which we dwell left out the things upon which we rely, and how seriously God takes this uh, falling away, this uh, leaving out, this lack in the things which he has commanded. And so he brings us to understand that simple neglect is enough to damn us. It is in that sense a, a, a potent sermon and a very needful one for us. May God help each one of us to understand that there is nothing that we have done which merits God's favor. And even if we've done everything, we're left saying we are unfaithful servants, we're unprofitable. Even if we've done everything, we might be left saying that we are unprofitable servants. We need Christ Jesus. We need Christ to make up everything that we lack as well as to sweep away all that we have done that is contrary to the word of God. And I hope then that this will help us to be more humble, to be more thoughtful, to be more fervent, to consider more carefully what is absent and with the help of the Holy Spirit to give ourselves from our souls more more fully, more, more readily, more eagerly, more warmly to the, the service of God, to the worship of his name, to the pursuit of his glory. I hope that this has been a a blessing to you, even if not easy. And I hope you'll join us again next week to read from Sermon 843 to 849. And our featured sermon is going to be 844, Sermon 844, which is Justification by Faith, Illustrated by Abraham's Righteousness very different sermon to the one we've considered today and I hope you'll come back and I hope that it will be at least as much profit to you as listening today has been. So do follow us if you can, do leave us a review if you're able, it does make a a real difference to us and we do appreciate you listening and we trust that this will and continues to be a blessing to your soul.